Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public policy and management, social work, and urban studies. On this episode, we'll speak to Dr. Robin Cox, Assistant Professor at the University of Southern California, Susan Dwarak Peck School of Social Work. Dr. Cox received her MA and PhD in economics from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies in 2007 and 2009, respectively. Dr. Cox researches inequality. Her primary areas of study are the social and economic consequences of criminal justice policies in general and mass incarceration in particular. Her work focuses on how to successfully transition individuals impacted by mass incarceration policies back into society. Her work has led to the conceptualization and incorporation of a pilot housing insecurity module within the 2019 American Housing Survey. In addition to her faculty position at USC, Robin Cox is a faculty affiliate at the university's Edward R. Roybal Institute on Aging and its Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics. Good morning, Dr. Cox. Thank you so much for coming in and sitting down with us today. So first things first, you're a California native. What led you to come all the way to Georgia State to get your PhD? So I left California right after high school um, to attend Duke University, uh, where I got my bachelor's in economics and Spanish and Latin American studies. And when I finished my bachelor's, um, I wasn't I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I liked economics, so I looked for master's programs that um, had the same interest that I had in uh, research interests um, in policy. And there were very few schools, very few economics programs that seemed to merge the policy focus quite like Georgia State, especially as a ma- and and that was a standalone master's program at the time. So I applied to Georgia State, got in, and and that led me here to start my graduate career. In your time here at the Andrew Young School and at Georgia State, was there a particular course that was really impactful, or a particular faculty member that really left a mark on you? So I would say um, because. <laughs> Eventually, I ended up getting my PhD in economics from uh, from the Andrew Young School as well. And so I think most of the courses that I took provided a foundation for me um, for uh, being able to answer the questions that I answer and giving me the tools needed to answer those questions, both empirically and theoretically. But if, if we think about the focus or the area of my research, um, I would say that my two fields, public finance and labor, have helped me within within, within my own research. Um, in terms of faculty members, um, Dean Sally Wallace, who was my dissertation advisor when I was here as a student, was was really impactful. Just being able to watch her and uh, how she was able to maneuver family not family life and her career you know, and and still find time for her students was just, it was inspiring to me. And so you mentioned working with Dean Wallace on your dissertation. What was that like from an academic perspective? How did that relationship function for working on your dissertation or just, in you know, stopping by her office? How, how do you feel like that relationship influenced your research and influenced the way that you now work as a faculty member? 
Dean Wallace, I, we've also been collaborators on research as well, and, and she's an excellent collaborator as well. She really puts in the time, provided, she provided very detailed comments on my dissertation, editorial comments, which is, which when you leave graduate school, you find is really nice because not a lot of people have the time to do that. So, uh, in economics, we always say submit the paper um, for publication or you present at a conference or, or at a brown bag in a department so you can get the feedback you need because we're all so busy and we often don't have time to read and provide detailed comments um, beforehand on papers. But it was really nice that, that she was really invested in, in my work and, and, um, and provided detailed comments. She was also, you know, a great support system for me as well. And as a woman could relate to, um, many of the, the challenges that, that women typically have and can go through. So, um, I was really lucky. I think to have her because a lot of economic departments have very few women and I'm sure not very many um, like her. So, so I, I feel like I was very blessed. And so after your PhD, what was the transition like leaving the Andrew Young School and entering the academic workforce? How did you navigate that process? So the, the transition, I, um, I had a postdoc at Duke University in the Department of Economics there when when I left the program, or I actually left for the postdoc and sort of finished up, I defended, I remember I defended my dissertation in December, started the postdoc in January, um, and kind of finished up any additional editing or comments that were necessary with my dissertation along the way. Uh, so, so that was a, a good transition for me because it, it, I, I think postdocs are a good option if you sort of need to ease into an academic career. And so it helped me to see, you know, and, and experience more of academia. And then from there, I went to Spelman College, which further helped me to prepare and understand how to navigate within academia and actually helped to prepare me for where I am today, which is at the USC Suzanne DeVore Peck School of Social Work. Can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and your area of research? What, do you, what are you studying and kind of how did you get to what you're looking at right now? Sure. So my dissertation focused on the Prison Industry Enhancement Certification Program, which is really, it's a real-life work program. There's real outside employers who um, go in and employ individuals who are incarcerated. Uh, it's the Prison Industry Enhancement Certification Program Act is the, the only act that allows for individuals to go in uh, or employers to go in and use incarcerated individuals. And while there is controversy about using prison labor that I acknowledge, I looked at it from a perspective of does developing or this real world work experience provide some sort of hard skills and maybe even soft skills to individuals for when they reenter society. Um, so I measured how it impacted reentry by looking at the duration of employment, the duration of unemployment and earnings, as well as recidivism for my dissertation. I have always been very interested in 
how the criminal, the role that the criminal justice system has played in the lives of marginalized groups, especially African Americans, um, and how it has impacted the how how it's in, impacted inequality. I would say that I'm an inequality researcher, and what I'm really interested in is how institutions might impact levels of inequality. And so specifically, I'm interested in the role that the criminal justice system plays in perpetuating inequality, especially among um, African Americans. And, and so I began with that topic for my dissertation and uh, moved into other areas uh, looking at mass incarceration and how mass incarceration sort of impacts uh, family. Dean Wallace and I have a paper on the impact of incarceration on food insecurity among households with children. And uh, I, I have some current work looking at the effect of incarceration on cognitive impairment, um, the effect of uh, incarceration or the timing of incarceration on uh, the timing and duration of homelessness. So really my work, as you can see, is focused on issues of inequality and the role that the, the criminal justice system might be playing in being a further driver of inequality. I'm also interested in what drives racial disparities. Um, within the criminal justice system and what leads to disproportionate contact among certain, certain groups with criminal justice actors. So um, I also have some research looking at intergovernmental grant funding and how that impacts policing behavior and racial disparities in policing. So to kind of take a step back, for folks who maybe have heard these terms on the news or have seen it in papers but haven't done the depth of research that you're doing, and particularly from an economic perspective, can you help us define some terms like what would be an economic definition of the inequality that you're looking at or of mass incarceration? How do you wrap your brain around these huge structural concepts? So inequality is just, you know, on being unequal. And so any there's different types of inequality. I'm particularly interested in racial inequality. So, you know, you could you could look at it as the differences in educational outcomes between, for example, blacks and whites, the differences in wealth between blacks and whites, differences in health, so racial health disparities, for example. So Inequality, while there's many forms, I'm specifically interested in racial inequality and, and what has driven that. Mass incarceration is basically just the over-incarceration of individuals that we have seen in the past 40 years or so, which has been driven by policy. So often it's described as mass incarceration often is looked at as a pot, like sort of a body of policies that have led to the over-incarceration of individuals. And that over-incarceration has disproportionately impacted minority groups, specifically African-Americans. So, so that's what's meant by um, mass incarceration. And that's, that's what's meant by, or, or what, how I use inequality. And so as you can imagine, if there's an over-incarceration of African-Americans, one then has to then wonder why that is, and especially if it's policy, if, if, it's more, if it more has to do with policy than criminal behavior, which is what the current research has suggested. So what do you think is the biggest discussion in that current research? 
I know there's a lot going on there, but what is what is most concerning to you? What are you most, I guess, intrigued by or interested in looking at at the moment? That's a good question. Uh, I think criminal justice reform is a huge discussion in that. Um, you know, how do you deal... How do you begin the process of decarceration? Um, how do we create a more just and fair system? I think that um, for me, the criminal justice system is sort of the one of the last areas that we need to see a true civil rights movement in. You know, issues of crime is very. What's the word I'm looking for? It's um. It it brings confusion to the issue because uh, most people don't want to let go criminals or, you know, it's hard to, to empathize with someone who you believe has done something wrong. And so when you have a group that is disproportionately, has disproportionate contact with the criminal justice system, then it may, that leads to a dehumanization of that group. And so it's easy, especially if it's a historically marginalized group, it's easier to just not act on issues of inequality because if you feel as though that group is disproportionately problem makers in society or criminals because criminals are bad. But I think what we need to understand as a society is that Policies often drive, our criminal code is actually a a moral and ethical code, and policies actually drive who and what we consider to be a criminal. Part of the reason we got to the point of mass incarceration was because we were incarcerating people for behaviors that we didn't necessarily incarcerate for in the past. But then we also have to understand that the people who make up the criminal justice system are individuals and they bring their biases into the system. And so the same biases that have perpetuated within society are there within the system. And that often can determine who, for example, a prosecutor decides they're going to negotiate on a charge versus a sentence, or it can determine who the police decide they're gonna give, they're gonna just, you know, give a warning to, or, actually have a more severe reaction to someone's behavior, right? And so um, all of the biases and stereotypes that we have about individuals and people sort of filter into the system, um, even though we don't necessarily acknowledge that. And, and that continues to, to, to drive and reinforce inequality. Otherwise, the alternative is like I, you know, is that certain groups are just innately disproportionately criminal, and and that's not true as well. Now, it is true that inequality also can drive uh, income inequality, and huge disparities can drive criminal behavior, because within the economics framework, your opportunity costs to to illegal behavior is your are your legal wages. But either way, for me, either way you slice it, it means that we need more investments into certain communities beforehand to address those inequalities um, and that the wrong response is to use the criminal justice system, which has been happening um, over the past 40 years or so to address the issues of inequities that, that we've seen in society. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this 
in this manner because I think a lot of people when they hear you know the term economist they think of a person who's very I don't want to say cold but very quantitative very numbers focused but your emphasis on the human element is so interesting because like you said these systems are made up of individuals and individuals have thoughts and feelings and emotions and biases and ultimately we're create we are humans creating policies that impact other humans do you do you see a shift in that direction to a more kind of humanizing perspective in the field yeah i mean that's that's kind of interesting also hard question that i i hadn't really thought about looking to see like you know whether or not there's been this trend but i i do think that um there are a number of people who enter into economics to learn the empirical skills, but do so from a perspective of wanting to address issues of inequality, right? Um, and so I think that element has always been there. I've been blessed because in undergrad I had examples of that, and here I had examples examples of that. Um, so I think that there there are individuals who want to use these tools to try and understand more clearly these issues. Usually, economics is taken from more a very empirically driven approach, I guess. But I think we, you know, I guess I'll say this, that we're, we're all sort of motivated by something, you know, whether you're studying gender issues and family rights, women's rights, or you are studying criminal justice system, if you're interested in in inequality, I think it's to make the world a better place. And I hope it's just not for the sake of this particular question gives me a good, it's an interesting question to answer empirically and theoretically from an econometric standpoint. So therefore, I'm going to answer this question. While there is that as well, and we probably need that. There can also be some dangers in that. And so I hope, and I think most people who are focused on issues of inequality and who are interested in inequality are motivated to at least make the world a better place and to at least to really, truly understand um, the issues that are driving it. So one of the things that we're keeping an eye on here at the Andrew Young School is uh, incorporation of digital technologies into all of our fields, economics, policy, social work, criminal justice. And one of the things that we're noticing, and I'm sure you've probably noticed this as well, is that technology is often treated as though it is a neutral tool and it doesn't incorporate or perpetuate existing biases. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Are you seeing in the field how technology may impact the biases or the treatment of different groups within the criminal justice system? Is that something you're concerned about? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been some discussion about, for example, the, you know, background checks. And while, while technology has made them more accessible, and some might say that if you consider statistical discrimination, whether or not a company can do a background check or not, I mean, there's been some evidence of that might actually help or hurt individuals because of stereotypes. Um, and 
because groups are then statistically discriminated or sort of stereotypes are used to deduce this information that individuals don't have. But there is a drawback to that. There's a drawback to the fact that sometimes these systems get things wrong, you know, and that there are people who may not have an arrest or a criminal record, but they end up with one. And so as you can imagine, if certain groups are disproportionately impacted um, and have disproportionate contact with the criminal justice system, we could imagine that the burden might fall heavier on those groups. One example of that is, is through elections, where some have estimated that, for example, if we think back to um, the Bush-Gore election, that Gore actually would have won by something like a minimum of 30,000 votes. He would have won Florida if it hadn't been for felon disenfranchisement. And during that time, I actually, I don't know how I was flipping through. I was looking at C-SPAN and, and was looking at some congressmen and women from Florida who wanted to put on record, who were going up and wanting to put on record that many of their constituents could not vote because of, of this issue. Um, and these were African-American constituents. So really, that's just one example of how technology can hurt. hurt. Um, possibly with an, an example of how technology could help might be body cameras. Maybe that provides more accountability for police officers as they're interacting with, with different groups, um, which could help to restore uh, trust between both the police and, and communities that typically have not, um, and for good reason, been very trusting of, of police. But then there's, you know, there have, or there have been researchers who've talked about, uh, who've cautioned the use of big data um, and how solely relying on that data and, and on algorithms to provide analytics or to predict outcomes may actually hurt marginalized groups because it may perpetuate biases, as you mentioned earlier, right? Because some of these statistics are actually driven by the conditions that individuals live in. And so it could provide the wrong policy prescription for an issue. So for example, um, some have argued that mass incarceration actually started during Johnson's administration and that that during that time there was sort of he you know he he had a war on poverty and he had this war on crime simultaneously and he sort of merged the two especially within black communities and so this is really what created the foundation for what came to be these mass incarceration policies and increase in disproportionate contact with of African Americans with the criminal justice system. And so some scholars who've argued that it was because of, for example, these data analytics that, or faulty data analytics that were predicting that the black male population was going to increase. And so then therefore there was a response from the government to control what they thought would be a riskier population, which may have then just paved the way and led to the disproportionate contact with the police that we see today and these criminal justice policies. So you can imagine that uh, if we're not careful about how we analyze data and the 
And we don't also have caution with some of the, if we don't take into context some of the findings of the data, then we, we might be able to come, we may come to wrong policy conclusions for issues that really need, you might come to, okay, we need to deal with, it, deal with this through the criminal justice system versus we need more investments in education and opportunity, for example. So looking into some of your research, I came across the life course approach. Can you speak a little bit about that and what we know about its effectiveness in addressing these issues? The life course approach is really just sort of a, a conceptual framework or theoretical framework. You, you hear economists talk about life cycle, sociologists and other, and, and for example, health disparities researchers talk often about life course. And it's really life courses looking from sort of birth to death and uh, trying to understand at different points along the way what are the structural, cultural, uh, and social factors that might influence individual outcomes, for example. So how does that apply to your research approach? The way it applies to my approach is that because I have these sort of, I have, I could describe my research within three pillars um, where I'm interested in what leads to disproportionate contact on the front end with the criminal justice system. So obviously with that regard, um, you would look to individuals who, you look to sort of the timing of of contact with the criminal justice system and how that might then later impact outcomes for those individuals. And then I'm interested in, for example, how contact with that system might impact families and communities, for example. Um, and then I'm interested in, once individuals have had contact with that system, how do they transition back to society and become reintegrated? So you can imagine that obviously those would probably be at different stages within an individual's life. So, so that's why I sort of think about it from a life course perspective. But then now some of my more current research is interested in how have these mass incarcerations impacted aging and successful aging and um, disparities, racial disparities in aging. So I'm sort of interested in uh, this issue throughout sort of the life course. So thinking about your current work and thinking about your time here at the Andrew Young School for your master's and your PhD, what do you think the influence of this school and kind of the legacy of Ambassador Young and the faculty here and the whole milieu of the Andrew Young School, how do you think that's impacted where you are today? And I mean, I think the reason I... I liked the Andrew Young School. I mean, so when we, when, when earlier in our conversation, um, you said, while you're coming from more of a humanistic perspective in terms of your research, um, I think that's always been the case. You might even say that I've had my research interests have, aren't typically what you would see an economist do or the way that I go about the lens through which I conduct my research. But the reason I wanted to be here at the at the Andrew Young School and the reason I felt at home here is because I felt like I was able to explore my research from from that perspective. And especially because it was a policy school, 
I think it allowed me to do that. And then, of course, having a civil rights icon as um, the namesake of, of the school also sends a certain signal, obviously, of, of the, interest, the interest of the school. And so I think that it provided me with the foundation and the space to grow as a researcher, but also to answer the questions that I was interested in, an- in answering even if they weren't traditionally what you would think of as, as economic questions. I actually had people, when I was um, a grad student, sort of uh, at the later stages of, of my career as a grad student, I would describe, I would tell people about my dissertation, and I, I had a few people who said, well, that doesn't sound much, very much like a topic an econ- economist would, would research. But I, I do think now that there are more economists who are researching crime from this perspective. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us, Dr. Cox, and thanks for speaking at commencement and coming back to visit the Andrew Young School. Thank you for having me. For more information about Dr. Robin Cox and her research, please visit healthpolicy.usc.edu. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced and edited by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance from Jennifer Giratano. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice. And we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.